Welcome to the broadcast. It is a delight to have a special guest today. I mean, they're all special guests, but I've been stalking Elisa Childers a little bit on her YouTube channel for some time, and a mutual friend named Christopher Yuan said, you got to get Elisa on your program. So that day's arrived from Elisa's website as a lifelong churchgoer, follower of Jesus, and former CCM recording artist, and a Dove Award-winning group, Zoe. I experienced a period of profound doubt about my faith in my mid-30s. I felt as though I'd been tossed into a stormy ocean of uncertainty with no life jacket or lifeboat in sight. There's the lyricist coming out in their word choice. I love it. I did not know where to find answers to my questions or if answers existed at all. Did I have to accept it all? On some kind of blind faith, I began to investigate my faith intellectually, which we're going to talk about quite a bit. I took seminary classes and began to read everything I could get my hands on. This began my journey from unreasoned doubt into a vibrant, rational, and informed faith. Thanks for joining us, Elisa. Oh, so great to be with you. Thank you. So I went through and reviewed a bunch of your YouTubes, and of course, I had a couple of your books. You have five published now? Uh, well, technically, as of October 18th, it will be three. I contributed okay. to the first Mama Bear book, and then I wrote my—I call it a theological memoir called Another Gospel, and then the new one coming out is called Live Your Truth and Other Lies. So we'll have all that information in the show notes, and of course, you can use your search engine to search Elisa Childers, and you'll find all this in a matter of seconds. But let's talk about progressive Christianity. Jump right in. That was sort of your— your own awakening <laughs> was you're in a church context, seeing other believers, and I'll let you define it, but I've got a bunch of questions about it. Give us, I know you have a podcast that talks about the five things to look for, which I thought was accessible and helpful, but give listeners maybe who don't know you a little bit of a sense of what happened and what progressive Christianity means. Well, yes. So progressive Christianity is notoriously difficult to define because it doesn't really work the same way that Christianity has worked historically. And what I mean by that is historically we've had creeds, we've had sort of agreed upon beliefs that define what Christianity is, that makes it unique in the world. But progressive Christianity is a lot broader. There's a broad spectrum of beliefs that fall under that umbrella. It's very fluid. It's constantly changing. In fact, my book came out in 2019. I already want to update it with a couple of new chapters just to mm -hmm. keep up with the movement. But my exposure to it really began over 10 years ago. Uh, you mentioned that I spent some time in the contemporary Christian music industry. After my group came off the road and stopped touring and recording, my husband and I really put down roots in a local church right here in the Nashville area in Middle Tennessee. And we just loved this place. We loved the sense of community we found with the like-minded believers there. We loved the pastor's intellectual approach to his sermons. We had never really been exposed to that. And we were just home. And after about eight months, the pastor invited me to be a part of what he described as an inner circle type study and discussion group. He said, if you go through this four-year class, you'll come out on the other side with a seminary-level education. Now, this was very exciting to me because, honestly, I was kind of burnt out from traveling, and I really wanted to dig back into my faith. I'd become kind of lazy with my Bible study. And what I was not prepared for, though, was in the first class, he basically admitted to this very exclusive small group of us that he was what he called a hopeful agnostic. And of course, as you can imagine, red flags start flying, but I'm thinking, well, I don't want to be judgmental. I'm just going to keep an open mind. But 
essentially what happened, and this is the journey I write about in the book Another Gospel, is that every precious belief that I'd ever held about God and Jesus, and especially about the Bible, these things were picked apart. They were explained away. They were deconstructed. And uh, for many people in my class, they ended up walking away from their faith. Really? In my in life, that class? it had— In that class? In that class, yeah. Wow. Or or, you know, re-identifying themselves as a more progressive type of Christian. Okay. And so, yeah, to my knowledge, I'm the only one from that class that I was in that is still um, has what I would call a meaningful definition of historic Christianity. But it threw me into a dark night of the soul, a, a really dark time of doubt, uh, really came up to the edge of agnosticism. I don't think I could have gone full atheist, but just at least to the edge of agnosticism, cried out to God. Lord, if you're real, if you exist, if everything I've believed about you is true, I need some information. Because <laughs> I didn't know that there was all this apologetics out there. I didn't know m much about any of that. So the Lord and his faithfulness led me to the study of apologetics. It rebuilt my faith. And then years later, uh, the church that we had, you know, we ended up leaving the church, of course, but years later, they came out as a progressive Christian community. They re-identified themselves. And that's when I thought, well, I want to know more about this progressive Christianity and try to figure out what it's all about. So that's when I began to study the movement, and ultimately that led to me writing the book Another Gospel. What's striking, and we've lived in Middle Tennessee now for 15 years, and I don't want to be unkind, but I've often made the comment that the music industry and artists in general lean a lot more emotional and experiential than cognitive and critical. And again, I don't want to sound unkind. One of my dear friends, you, you may know Jason Germain. He's just a, a very thoughtful artist, and he uses this term a lot, moralistic therapeutic deism. Mm. Yes. And he goes, that's how we define what has happened, especially in the art industry, that there's it's moralistic, it's therapeutic, it's all about me, and boy, the Christian counseling in Middle Tennessee, <laughs> it's all into itself, but that's it. It's deistic, not a biblical theological foundation. Mm -hmm. So with that as sort of a, you know, Michael easily leading on that, what, how do you respond to that similar disagree? Yeah, no, I think that's very astute. In fact, um, that phrase really comes from a study they did in 2005 where they interviewed the average American teenager, and that was their view of God. Just the average American teenager thought God was basically just this giant therapist in the sky that just wanted them to be nice and happy and good to each other. But, you know, he's not going to he's not gonna tell you who you can or can't sleep with or get involved in that kind of stuff. And that's the deistic part. He's sort of distant unless you need him for something. And then, you know, he'll help you out. If you need some help, you can pray. And so this was a very obviously unchristian view of who God really is and how he works. And I think it has bled into the church. And I'm not sure if it's because the music industry influenced the church or the other way around. But I can speak to being in the contemporary Christian music industry, and there's absolutely zero accountability. If you want accountability as a Christian artist, you really have to provide it for yeah. yourself. And that sort of defeats the purpose there. But, you know, I don't think there were any pastors aware of me while I was touring. I had moved to town and never really got connected with a local church. By the time I started touring, you're gone on Sundays. Yeah. And as far as the industry is concerned, there's wonderful people in the industry. I don't mean to to right. dump on the whole thing. But ultimately, it's a business. They have secular record companies that they have to report to and that they have to make their numbers for and that they are accountable to. So really, the 
the life of the artist, the spiritual life of the artist is inconsequential as long as they're selling records and as long as they don't cause too much trouble with whatever they're doing. So I think what that leads to is a lot of burnout. There's a lot of people, I think, in the industry who aren't actually Christians. Maybe they grew up in church. They started singing in youth group, got a record deal. So I think that lack of accountability and lack of a standard for artists really leads to the problem. But also because as a songwriter, I remember feeling pressured to write the type of song that yep. was currently selling at the time. And that might be a good message. It might not be a good message. Oversimplification, perhaps. Uh, as I've watched progressive Christians and some of the people you've even talked about in your uh, YouTubes, like Brian McLaren, the seminary training to the pulpit path has changed dramatically since I went to seminary 43, four years ago. And what they're teaching in seminary has changed so dramatically. And many of the pastors that we could talk about have no training. Mm. And so I mean, I can't tell you the number of friends that I've had in the industry, music industry, who said, you know, well, you know what happens. You get in your 30s and 40s, things start to drop off if you're not, you know, a superstar. And then what do you do? Well, God's mm. calling me in the ministry. Right. <laughs> I'm like, great. Go be uh, a music pastor college. somewhere, right? uh, That's a problem, you know. So uh, they feel it overbearing to say, you need seminary. You need mm. to learn to think critically about how to read the Bible, how to teach the Bible, all that, again, I'm prattling a bit, but is it an oversimplification to say the lack of training with so many of these pulpits has led to progressive Christianity? That's an interesting question. I would say ultimately, yes, the lack of good training. But as you properly identified, part of the problem is that virtually any Bible college you go to today, some are better than others, but almost all of them are, are deeply influenced by cultural you know, sort of zeitgeists like critical theory or the social gospel or uh, progressive Christianity. And so it's very difficult even today to recommend a good Christian college. I mean, yeah. there definitely are some that are great, but for the most part, it's very difficult for Christian colleges and seminaries these days to to not, you know, fall prey to the mission drift that tends to happen with this cultural sort of contagion that we see happening. And so I think it's a really tough spot for the church to be in right now. But ultimately, yes, I, you know, I, I'm embarrassed to tell you this, but I grew up as a faithful Christian my whole life, loved the Lord, loved studying the Bible. Um, I knew the Bible very well, but nobody had ever, like in all my years growing up in church, taught me how to interpret the Bible properly. I never heard of hermeneutics until I, until I almost lost yeah. my faith and was God was rebuilding. I didn't even know that there was a correct way to right. interpret the Bible. And so um, I think it's not just a seminary problem. It's also just a, a church problem that we're not really teaching the Bible anymore, but, but or at least teaching is, how pulpits, to. Those pulpits and church leaders are untrained, and they are yeah. caught in a cultural milieu. And so rather than say, we need a discipleship course, we need a Bible study methods course, not a how to reach the social justice or BLM yeah. or engage. I love, I love, hate this word. We need to engage, <laughs> fill in the blank. We need to engage LBGTQ. We need to engage. Yeah. I go, show me a scripture where it says engage anything. It says make disciples. It says yeah. do the work of evangelists. It says study to show yourself approved. It does not say go out and engage the culture, but I'm, I'm leaving that's here. A, can I comment on that? Because Please. that's a really, really great point. One thing I've even noticed in the apologetics world, just in the last five or 10 years especially, is that there's like this, the highest virtue is if you're able to have 
a, a kind conversation with an atheist. Like, if you can do that, like, you have really <laughs> achieved. And I'm just thinking, I mean, yeah, what? of course, I want to be kind to the atheists Civil, in my yeah, life yeah. and have good conversations. But, like, that's the highest goal now is if, if you can just invite an atheist on your channel and have a, a you know, a kind conversation. And it's like— that's really not the biblical mandate, though. <laughs> not know? hardly, yeah. Not in my Bible. A former church I served, one of the uh, pastors I worked with wanted to have a Sunday where we had non-Christian atheist agnostics, and he wanted to interview them on why they didn't believe. And I said, that's a great idea for a Sunday school class or whatever. You got 30 minutes once a week to get people's nose in the Bible, and you want to talk to exit interviews of people that don't believe? Yeah. And it was just unconscionable to me. Yeah, but that, again, yeah. and I don't want to overstate this or be unkind, but that, I think, is the milieu you and I are in in Middle Tennessee. Mm. Now, the question we need to move beyond and think about, you know, our country broader because this, you know, like your podcast, people beyond Middle Tennessee engage these things. I want to go through the five things you identify from your podcast, and we can come back and talk to them, hear, hear your comments on each of them. Uh, the first, you say, watch out for these things, a lower view of the Bible. Mm -hmm. Secondly, feelings emphasized over facts, which is back to this moralistic therapeutism. Feelings emphasized over facts. Third, essential Christian doctrines are open for reinterpretation. Four, historic terms are redefined. That's a big one. And five, the heart of the gospel shifts from sin and redemption to social justice. Let's start with the lower view of the Bible and, and ask the question, uh, you, you admitted you didn't know what hermeneutics were or how to study the Bible. Is that cross-country from your experience, what you're seeing? I do think so, yeah, especially from some of the feedback I get from my podcast. And, you know, I'll go speak at conferences and do what seems to me like a very, very basic, almost I'm worried, like, I hope this isn't so simple Remedial. that they're going to be bored. And yet people will be like, that, I've never heard this Amazing. before. So, <laughs> Yes, exactly. So I do encounter that quite a bit. But as far as in the progressive church, the lowered view of the Bible, it's very tricky because the language that's often used is you'll hear progressives say, oh, we actually have a higher view of the Bible than the typical evangelical or whatever it may be. But what they mean by that is that they're taking it out of the realm of being the revealed word of God that's authoritative for our lives, that's without error in, in everything that it records. And what they actually mean is, well, this is a human book that's about God. So these were the people in different times and cultures trying to figure Yahweh out. And, you know, this is their story, kind of their theological, spiritual memoir, so to speak. And so it's not necessarily authoritative. Or, you know, if, if you read in the Old Testament that Yahweh commanded Israel to wipe out the Canaanites, for example, well, in the mind of the progressive, Yahweh would never do that. So that can't be Yahweh. Right. So so that was just those guys trying to please their God, but he, Yahweh would never, you know, want them to do that. So it's a very subjective view of what the Bible says. You kind of, I mean, ultimately pick and choose which parts are actually God speaking and which parts are not. And of course, as you and I both know, then you might as well just write your own Bible at that point. Which is what they do. I mean, I have this little, a lot of pet peeves and I often in a sermon will say, if I go to a Bible study and someone reads a passage and the leader says, what's this mean to you? Mm -hmm. I want to cough up a hairball. I'm going, I don't right. care what it means to you. <laughs> what yeah. does it mean? <laughs> totally irrelevant what it means to you. That yeah. is for sure. And, and we just pool our emotional intake on, oh, this passage, I love this passage because, never mind the context, feelings emphasize over facts. Mm. This is a big one. 
oh, it makes me nauseous, at least. I read, I go, oh, it's just terrible. How'd this mm. happen? I think it has happened through the influx of critical theory into culture. And I'll try to explain this as simply as possible. The average progressive is not going to agree with that wording. They're not going to say, oh, yeah, sure. I totally emphasize feelings over facts. But the reason I worded it that way is because it really has to do with how we know what's true and how we know what's false, right? So in because progressive Christianity is so influenced by postmodernism, so in other words, if objective truth exists to the postmodern person, nobody can actually claim to know it. So uh, you have to really look down inside of your heart to figure out what, and they'll even couch it in language like your God-given conscience, right? You have to look at these sort of inner moral compass that God has given you and determine, even from Scripture, which parts are good or bad or true or false. And so to me, I don't see any way around saying this is feelings emphasized over facts. In fact, in many progressive writings, you'll hear different Bible verses presented, and the person will say things like, well, I want to believe the parts that lead me toward wholeness, but I want to reject the ones that do harm. Well, as any parent knows, if you've ever taken your kid to the dentist, the kid in the dentist chair thinks they're being harmed. But of course, the parent knows this is actually for their good and to avoid greater pain down the road. And uh, so how much more information does God have? Of course, so not every scripture is going to like resonate in our little hearts because we're sinners, right? But I think that's what it all comes down to is really how you answer the question, are you a sinner or are you not? Because if you're a sinner, then you know you can't always trust that internal moral compass. A hundred years ago, Alan Bloom wrote a book called The Closing of the American Mind, and he made a comment in there, psychologists are the sworn enemy of guilt. Mm. And I thought about that for a decade and, and said the, the objective is, you know, we've vilified guilt and shame. In fact, mm. when I teach, I'll often say there is a good guilt and there is mm -hmm. a good shame. There's mm -hmm. a godly guilt and shame. Now, that's not meant to, you know, demoralize you or put you in a, you know, an elementary school chair where your teacher's berating you. It's meant to say this is wrong and that should right. lead to prevention, right? I mean, if I feel guilt and shame then that feeling is important because mm. maybe I shouldn't go there again. Mm -hmm. Now, if it's overwrought, obviously it can harm a person. And we, but we, we become obsessed with how we feel. Your point, we become obsessed with shame and guilt. I watched a exchange. I'm a little bit of a political hack, and I watched an exchange with a senator and someone being te testified, and the person got angry at the senator because they were triggered. Mm. And I thought, this is the ultimate illustration of my feelings leading, not facts, not why we're on Capitol Hill yeah. in, in a subpoena situation, but I feel threatened by you. <laughs> yeah. And so that leads over into our view of the Bible, right? Yeah, that sure does. In fact, I was talking with a college professor uh, a couple weeks ago, and she was saying how difficult it is to be a teacher right now among you know college-age kids because their feelings have been so validated all their lives. At her particular college, all they have to do is say, hey, I feel harmed by having to take this test, or I have some sort of emotional trauma from having to take this test, and they don't have to take the test. And they even have these rooms they can go into <sighs> if they feel triggered by some of that stuff. And so it's made them—and her point was, too, it's like we use pejorative terms, but she said in, in very many ways they really can't deal with any hardship because they've never really had Experienced to. Experienced it, yeah. Yeah. Thirdly, essential Christian doctrines are open for reinterpretation. This one is, is kind of my world because I'm a bit of a theological hack, and I, 
I'm so frustrated. I, I teach a doctrinal statement from time to time. In fact, it's been on repeat program on Moody Radio for many years. They keep recycling it. And I go, that mm. thing's old. And I go, yeah. But people respond because we went through the doctrinal statement. And I think I called it what we believe isn't important. It's critical. Mm. And I went through these doctrines of why it's important to believe in a Trinitarian Godhead. And back to your point, when you heard something, I didn't know that. Like when you speak somewhere, this was basic, mm-hmm. but they didn't know it. So that's why I go back to part of the blame I do think falls on the seminary training and those leaders of those congregations who aren't savvy enough to say, no, we're going to be clear, not clever. Mm-hmm. We're going to teach the scripture and make disciples. We're not going to try and deal with trends and isms and ologies. I've got seminary grad buddies that are nationally prominent figures that have so far removed from the Bible I have one in particular that breaks my heart, and I email him from time to time, and I don't understand. And my message to him is, why be clever when you need to be clear? Mm, that's good. So your take on this, the doctrines have become reinterpreted. Yeah. So, of course, I think you and I would both agree that there are certain beliefs that are more important than others, right? There are these core essentials that actually define Christianity. These are salvation issues. But one thing a lot of Christians don't realize is that in progressive Christianity, all the doctrines are sort of put on the same level. So Mm. what you believe about the bodily resurrection of Jesus is no more or less important than where you might land on, you know, the sign gifts of the Spirit continuing or uh, maybe what your particular view of predestination and free will might be. That's no more or less important than uh, the atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And so with all of the the doctrines put on the same level— there's just this openness to say, well, you know, maybe we can redefine if the resurrection's all that important. Maybe, you know, you'll read in a lot of progressive literature, maybe it doesn't have to be a physical resurrection for it to be meaningful. Maybe it can be symbolic. Maybe it's a metaphor. Maybe it's something we can use as a good moral lesson. But whether or not it happened in history, maybe that doesn't really matter. And so, you know, I'm all for somebody who maybe grew up in a particular denomination saying, hey, you know, some of these secondary and third tier, even fourth tier issues that were so important in that church, I want to reexamine those and make sure I think those are biblical. I think that's great. We, we should always do that. But when we bring that into those essentials, like maybe I'm going to redefine Christianity, that's where we have to say, whoa, okay, those are the ones we don't touch, right? And so in progressive Christianity, they're just open to reinterpreting and redefining virtually everything. It's been interesting how Twain made the comment, it ain't those parts of the Bible I don't understand that bother me, it's the parts I do. Mm. And I, I think that's where we are because we have over, and I think one of your podcasts, you talked about love, maybe that's even your next point, is that love has become such a mercurial term, and rather than the love of God's a two-sided coin, it's wrath on one side and love on the other, and yet this mm-hmm. culture, if I don't feel loved, it's, you know, I have to... Your illustration of God saying wipe out a people group. Well, let's see, I'm Malachites. I remember teaching on that many, many years ago, and people were really upset. And I said, if the God of the universe who created mankind knows that a people group are idolatrous, they hate Israel, they hate Israel's God, more importantly, they're determined to destroy Israel and therefore Israel's God, God has a right to say it's time. Now, we mm-hmm. don't live in a theocratic culture anymore. We, we live in a church age, if you want to call it that, and there's a different way God deals with humanity. But when he was a theocratic godhead trying to protect his people before a monarchy mucked up the, the works, we might say, yeah, that's hard to swallow. Well, mm-hmm. it, it, if he's God and he's sovereign, he's still loving. So what do you tell people when they say, wait a minute, uh, he's not a loving God? 
Yeah, well, that's one story in the Bible that comes up quite often. And, you know, I'll come at it different ways with different groups, but the main point I think that we have to remember, too, that gets often gets left out of that discussion is that God gave the Canaanites hundreds of years to repent, sending prophets trying to get them to repent, yeah. and they're and, and he, in his patience and in his mercy, waited. He held his hand of judgment. But, you know, the other point, too, is that he held Israel to the same standard. Yes. You know, there were, there were times when they were doing the same things, and he came down with that same kind of judgment. And I think, too, I think one of the reasons that story is so offensive to people is because they don't have a full vision of who God actually is. I mean, what do they think is going to happen on Judgment Day? In fact, I was talking with a group of high schoolers, and— I kind of took a chance and I decided to go a little bold with it. But this kid gets up and he's like, what about your God committing genocide? And I explained how I, you know, I don't qualify that as genocide. It wasn't right. race-based in the sense that, oh, just because they're a different race, we're going to go in and kill them. It was a sin problem. And then I'll even describe how corrupt and wicked that culture was and how in even in the social justice wars that are out in our world today would be wanting to send the troops in for some yes. of the injustices that were happening in that culture. So I get into some of the nuance of that. But then I, I said to this group of students, I said, if you think that's bad, wait do you see what he's going to do when he returns? Mm. You know, I mean, it, Jesus is coming back to make war with his enemies. And he, in his mercy, gives us the chance to be at war with him or at peace with him. We actually get that chance where we get to be at peace with him. And so I think that we've lost maybe an eschatological sense of of history and, and who God is, but certainly don't mean to minimize the difficulty of that passage. Certainly that is difficult to read, and it's sure. something we all have to wrestle with and wrestle through. But I think it comes down to trust as well. Do we trust that God is good? Do we trust that he is just? And maybe there's things we don't understand about it. I don't know who said this originally, but there's a great phrase floating around that says, if I, if I had God's power, I would change a lot of things. If I had his wisdom, I wouldn't change anything. And I think that that's what we fail to realize is that God knows more than we do. And so that does require trust from us. And I think that a lot of Christians think trust just is this one-time thing. You put faith in Jesus and you're saved. Right. And But trust is, is a daily thing. Faithfulness is different than faith at a point in time. Uh, interesting. When, uh, this, our culture right now is a, a mess, arguably. And uh, I often try to remind our congregation, say, guys, Israel's entire history was wrought with, you know, famines and war and exile and almost complete extermination. And then if you want to come into our century, uh, this thing called the Holocaust, and he still mm. loves the Jewish people. And we are 200 and my math is always slow on how old America is. Is it 245 this year? Something like that, yeah. We think we're something. Mm. And Israel was 400 years <laughs> enslaved, you know. Yeah, but yeah. I, I think the, the, the Western uh, culture has... The good news is obvious. The bad news is we've gotten satiated but between rationalism and enlightenment and post-modernity. We're a mess today, and we're, mm. we're seeing the results of it in the church. Um, I'm pontificating again. Let's talk about the heart of the gospel shifting from sin and redemption to social justice. Yeah, that's the big one, because one of the things I would say the core gospel in progressive Christianity is basically telling people that they're not inherently sinful. That's that's essentially the gospel message. It's, you know, if the progressives are not going to deny that sin exists, but what they deny is that sin would separate you from God. So you just need to realize how loved you are. You need to just realize 
that you are inherently united with God. If you feel separated from God, that's just in your own mind. It's just your own wrong thinking that's separating you, or maybe your shame. And so because of that, there's a rejection of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, right? Any kind of atonement view that would view Jesus as a substitute, this is rejected. The existence of a literal place called hell is rejected. So if you think about that, I mean, that's a pretty clear rejection of the historic Christian gospel right there. So what are you going to put in its place? And so what you will often hear in progressive churches, and and I should note this too, that mainline liberal Protestant churches have a lot of progressive Christians in them, but I define progressive Christianity as a very specific movement with very similar theology to the liberalism, but it's coming up and out of the evangelical church. So it's sort of like, it's the same sort of parasite, but infected a different host in in, in some, some ways. So a lot of progressives go to mainline Protestant churches and whatnot. But, you know, if if you've rejected that, then you're going to go to a mainline liberal Protestant church or progressive church, and the sermon's going to be something along the lines of being, you know, being a good member of your community, being uh, a good neighbor, and not that's wrong, not that we shouldn't want to be good neighbors and all of that stuff, of course, but that's really what becomes the heart of the gospel message is what good works are you doing? Now, of course, in our chaotic culture with the infection of things like the critical social justice and things like this— then that's going to take a very activism-type approach. So, and it's not about—notice it's not about, you know, abortion activism, right? In progressive Christianity, you don't want to be doing pro-life work, right? You don't want to do that kind of activism. It's the kind of activism that goes in line with culture, like LGBTQ activism. You want to be doing, you know, anti-racism, this kind of thing— and that's because there's a there's a very oppressed versus oppressor approach. And so any sort of unequal outcome is viewed as oppression. Now, a lot of people think when I say that, that I'm talking about economics. This goes so much further than economics. Think about in the eyes of the progressive, any unequal outcome being oppression, well, then you have the heterosexual couple that's allowed to get married and, you know, back before the, the law was changed— a same-sex couple was not. Well, that's an unequal outcome. Therefore, that's oppressive to the same-sex couple, which is why the activism in the progressive church always goes into that social justice kind of critical theory influence that we see in culture today. I appreciate that. It's a great insight. Uh, I'm going to ask you your thought on this. I think it's easier. It's oh, easier sure it to is. stand with LGBTQA. It's easier to stand with pro-choice because I won't be vilified. I won't be called a fascist which is That's completely right. mystery. So the average Christian and the average pastor probably who doesn't know the issues and doesn't, you know, they can't talk about it without getting angry or they're ill-equipped to talk about it. And they can't just say, you know, I don't know all the nuances, but I think God made man and woman in his image. And that mm-hmm. was his design. I remember when Obergefell was passed, uh, it was Stephen Justice Breyer, I believe. I quote this all the time. He was the one that said the test of it, which by the way, he voted for it. But he said, this will be tested with religious freedom. Mm. And it's not just bake the cake anymore. It's you will officiate the service. Not just that, you will celebrate Mm -hmm. the service. And if you don't, you're a fascist, you're a misogynist, or any other category of labels. So it's easier just to say, I want to be kind and loving and give to the food bank and help out my, you know, friends, as opposed to say, you know, I love you, as Rosario Butterfield would say, it's not loving if you don't call a center to repent. That's right. That's right. Boy, that's hard for a lot of Christians. It is. In fact, you know, you even see high-level evangelical even thought leaders, if they capitulate on these issues, if they 
you know, if they express all that, they get a write-up in the New York Times, right? They get to be portrayed (laughs) as the good evangelicals, right? And and it's like they get rewarded. And it's the same uh, as you trickle down into just the the regular community. It's like I think so many Christians— have it's the fear of man. They want to be seen yes. as the we're the good Christians, right? We're the ones that are loving and tolerant loving. and all inclusive and accepting, and yet they're compromising. And it's a really interesting time to be a Christian in the culture because I think we've enjoyed sort of this Judeo-Christian undergirding to our in our country until now. And it's for really for the first time we're experiencing what most Christians have experienced throughout church history in various cultures and times, which is that culture doesn't really like what we're saying, and it's not cool to be countercultural. You know, I always thought when I was in high school, I'm going to be countercultural because <laughs> that was cool. You know, it's cool right. to swim against the stream. It's not really cool anymore, and so that's when it really gets tested, right? Well, to be countercultural is to be a clear-minded, biblically-based Christian. That's countercultural, right. you know, exactly. And, and we are we are certainly in a minority, and, and I think the lack of courage on so many people. It's hard to stand up against these things, and mm. you're, you're going to be vilified. You're going to be hated by your—you you didn't know your neighbors, you know, until you take a stand on something. Um, right. Now, I appreciate the piece you did on redeeming love, mm. and you, you talked about this movie, which I've not seen, but it was a fictionalized account of the story of Hosea, and you did a nice job of talking about why you didn't go to it. On, on a grander scale for people— um, Christian fiction, and I, I have some of my dear friends are Christian fiction authors. I'm not mad at them. But the challenge I have with it for the average Christian mind who doesn't know the story to begin with, they don't know the Bible, they don't know biblical theology, and you're giving them the shack or you're mm. giving them fill in the blank, and you're saying, oh, it's good to see this stuff. You take a different stand on why, in that case, that one case, why you don't want to go and or support it. Expand on that a little bit for folks. Well, I remember, I still haven't seen it. And so a lot of people said, well, you don't have the right to speak about yeah. it if you haven't seen it. And to that, I just say, well, I don't have to watch Game of Thrones to know that I'm, I think it's wrong to, to watch Game of Thrones, right? But I remember seeing a preview for that movie. I had barely heard of the book. I remember hearing a couple of friends who had read it. I knew virtually nothing about it. All I knew is that this Christian movie is coming out. It's based on Hosea, and by the way, the book—now, they didn't explicitly say this in the movie marketing, but in the book, it's very—it says it's a retelling of the story of Hosea. So this isn't just sort of loosely based on some characters from a Bible story. This is a retelling of the story of Hosea. And, of course, I love the book of Hosea, so I was like, oh, maybe this will be really cool. And then I'm watching this preview, and it's getting kind of racy just in the preview— And I'm thinking, wait a second, the book of Hosea is not about a prostitute. It's not like the the Christian pretty woman where the prostitute, you know, gets the guy in the end. That's not what this book is about, right? This is about Israel's gross rebellion and chasing after idols and Yahweh's continued patience and call to repentance. But there's a lot of judgment in the book. It's, you know, I've been doing a deep dive study in in that book. I've had to put that on hold just for the moment in studying in First Peter recently. But I, I mean, it, it was just stunning to me that all these Christian women were flocking to this movie, which ultimately was just sort of like a emotional porn type of, or at least what it appeared to be to yeah. me. And then, you know, I got a lot of pushback on that video, though. I, it was interesting. I'm kind of used to 
ticking off the progressives. I'm not used to ticking off the conservative women, but it really, <laughs> I think what ended up happening is that, I mean, every, everybody was mad at me on that one, but I think it revealed an idol. You know, even if some of the points they were making were even valid, the I have never in my life seen Christian women defend the Bible like they defended this movie. And I think that was worth looking at. Why, why is that the case? Yeah, I, I, I uh, again, I'm not the most diplomatic person, as my daughter, who's listening, will attest. But this device, this phone that we all are welded to, and the access to information on it is a wonderful thing. But, Elisa, my concern is people are getting information from a four-inch screen, five-inch screen, Mm. not opening a book and having to sit. And and neuroplasticity, neuroscience has demonstrated that interacting with something physically, taking notes, writing on a pad, thinking critically, not being distracted by 15 programs. Now, the caveat, I live and breathe on Logos software I have for decades, early adopter. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to study and devotion, I want a physical book because Mm. there's something tactile and integrated about reading this, writing notes in the margin, asking questions, flipping the cross-references, and... I don't know what your take on that is, but when I read some of these progressive things, I don't see any counterweight that says you need to be in a physical, personal, devotional Bible study each day. Mm. Learn how to pray. Learn what it means to be a disciple. Learn, are you making a disciple? Are you becoming a disciple? How do you measure, if you want to use outcome-based, how do you measure Christianity as an outcome-based? What are you doing with your life? Vis-a-vis all the things we're talking about is I, me, my. Mm. It's how it affects me, how I feel. Am I safe? Am I loved? Am I loving? As opposed to there's a holy God out there who's given me a pretty clear mandate. Am I aligning my life to that? Mm. Thoughts, that's, response? That's, that's good. I, I, uh, so I'm one of those people that I don't mind reading books on Kindle. I don't mind that. In fact, when I'm st- researching for, like you mentioned, Logos Bible Study, that's all digital When I'm researching or doing a book review, often I will put it on Kindle because I can put my highlights in there, and then you can always go back and find all your notes and highlights. But you make a very good point about Scripture, and I'll give you a little personal anecdote where I've been thinking this through more deeply myself. When we do our family devotions, I used to just read from my phone, from the Scripture, whatever we're doing. And recently, over I would say past maybe since kind of we've gotten back into the school year and everything, I was like, we need to have a physical Bible out. And, you know, number one— of course, you know, if all you have is your Bible on your phone, that's great. Use it. You know, I'm not saying don't yes. read your Bible on your phone, but it's so easy to be distracted. I mean, how many times have you opened up your phone Bingo. to go to your Bible and you never got to the Bible because you checked your Instagram or you saw a notification come in from one of your apps and you never actually got to the study or you're distracted because a notification comes in while you're reading it. And I think that there is something, like you mentioned, so valuable, and I probably need to think this through more deeply, but I know even my instinct was to say, I need the kids to see a physical Bible open, right? Because there is something that it, you can stay focused more. I think it, you're right, just writing your notes and highlighting and all of that. So that's that, that's a, something you've given me to think about that I need to think about more, and I, I think I tend to agree you know, I do some study in, in Logos as well. I love to read all the commentaries they have sure. in there. But again, it's easy to get distracted when you're, you know, even on your computer and those yeah. notifications start coming in and, and it's it's hard to stay in it. Well, if I'm prepping for a message, I have to shut everything down except Logos and a Word document. Mm. I mean, if, if, if Google's in the background, if Outlook's open, I mean, it's I'm toast. You know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm rabbit squirrel all day long. I'm not, <laughs> but that's me. I mean, in, other people, I guess, are better at, 
switching gears on that. I was impressed you mentioned uh, Gresham Mason's book. I had to read that in seminary and actually write a paper on it. And I remember we had to go back and look at the context of which he wrote that book. And you alluded to it in, in one of your uh, YouTube casts. But it was interesting. You drew out some parallels. I'll, I'll let you share those as opposed to me parroting you. But you parallel what, what he was observing, how liberalism was affecting the church, and you aligned that to progressive mm-hmm. Christianity. Yeah, I will never forget reading that book for the first time. It was after I had had that experience in the progressive church. I do not know how I stumbled upon it because I, I can't fathom I would have no, – I don't know how I found out about it. Yeah. Because I was sort of in the beginning, I was just kind of scrapping. I was just like, I need good information from somewhere. And I remember devouring that book and feeling like it could have been written right then and there in that moment. It was every word of it was so relevant to what I had just experienced. And so that book was a huge anchor in the process of me sort of rebuilding and and the Lord rebuilding my faith. But yeah, the the parallels to me were just so obvious. The way that he would talk about the liberal preachers and their rejection of things like the inherent sinfulness of man or original sin or rejection of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. I Interestingly, similarly, I was just reading something about Spurgeon, how he would get so much pushback from the people around him, and yet the things he could not bend on were the Bible being the authoritative Word of God, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. I mean, it's just like today. It's like the things that are constantly, you know, the existence of a, a real place called hell. These are the things that are the battles of that? so many different generations. What's that? You, you still believe that? <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah. You know, I mean. You haven't become that, an annihilationist like everybody else? <laughs> well, no. I, no, I haven't. And, you I know, at, at least with, but at least with annihilationism, you do have a real place called hell. I mean, the progressives have pretty much just, I mean, there's nothing like that in progressive Christianity. That's, it's just, beyond tragic. you know, no place called hell. Well, let's, I could talk to you literally for hours and hours. I'm not just saying that. Um, give us the sense of not, not just where things are going. We can diagnose this endlessly, but what's Elisa Childers encouragement to Christians and, and maybe folks that are kind of struggling with doubt, Mark 9 kind of folks. What's your primer? What's your encouragement yeah. to them to, to learn, to think, to grow? Mm. Well, you know, I think that my encouragement for Christians would be to bear in mind that we have the same Word of God that Christians in the church and has always had, and let's plant our feet on that because not only is it true, not only is it God's revealed Word, but it doesn't change. And the reason that should bring us so much peace and comfort today is because we're living in a culture where you literally have to check Twitter every five minutes to find out what you're supposed to think— And you better not think what you thought five minutes ago, even though everybody thought that five minutes ago. And it's like a—it's a hamster wheel that's exhausting. It makes us completely live in the fear of man over the fear of God. So why not plant your feet in the unchanging Word of God, which sometimes culture is okay with bits of it. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes it makes it really—you're a pariah for it. But ultimately, it's— God that we want to please, right? And so to have that mindset of the audience of one, the mindset of planting our feet in his revealed word and living that word out to the best that we can with the Holy Spirit's help, of course, that's what's going to start to change things. And also I'll say this too, 
we have to stop worrying about what people say about us. We really do. I am living proof that you can get called a whole bunch of horrible things, and you will not die. (laughs) Your family will still love you. It doesn't really affect your real life all that much. And we really have to just start not apologizing for believing true things. And so those would be my two things. Elisa Childers, author of a new book you can pre-order now called Another Gospel. Along with that, you can pick up a DVD that walks you through the six sessions. And there's a study guide as well. And that's all available in the show notes. Or you can just search Elisa's name and you'll find it immediately. Thanks so much for joining the podcast. Again, love to have you back sometime if you'd be open to it. And uh, we'll continue trying to fight the good fight. Yep, I'd love it. Thanks so much for having me. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.